0: 9 to 20 and it's on page uh, 1002 in the Bibles in front of you. At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming out of the water he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hard men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thank you, both Anne's, for the prayers and the readings. And uh, it's great to be here uh, today. Happy New Year to you all. And I hope you've had a better start to the year than my football team. <laughs> and the, I have to say, the Manchester City supporting service leader and Manchester City supporting worship leader uh, were very sensitive in not mentioning that. Um, also, thank you for not mentioning my children. Uh, Clara's had chickenpox, Harry's had chickenpox, and now it seems this morning he may also have hand, foot, and mouth, which is not quite as serious as foot and mouth. We don't have to shoot him, so that's good. <laughs> but <laughs> he can't be here this morning, and Kate can't either, unfortunately. But um, I want to begin with a story a long time ago. Uh, it still involves uh, football, but I used to play football regularly right through my 20s, 30s, and before that as well. And uh, the particular team I was playing for, was about a year after I'd finished university, I was back with my parents for a year. And uh, and uh, they had a, a, a family of, of German children who would come over uh, one at a time uh, to get good at German, or sorry, to get good at English uh, by coming to England. And uh, this particular occasion, uh, I was living at home, and Peter was staying for a few months uh, from this family. I think he was. Uh, about 16, something like that. And uh, so we were always looking for things for him to do. So uh, that particular night, my brother and I said, hey, do you want to come to the football training with us? And uh, he said, yeah, that would be great. So we found some old football boots and and kit for him. He came along to training, and as uh, was my norm I was trying to make polite conversation with the other players introduce Peter to them and if there was anything interesting to say about one of the players as I was introducing them I'd mention it and as it happens I he, there was a carpenter in the team uh, John and uh, I didn't know any other carpenter so I introduced some players and then I introduced John I said Peter this is John he's a carpenter and uh, Peter looked puzzled and uh, clearly didn't know what I meant. I, and um, we said, you know, like Jesus. And he said, oh, okay. And uh, so anyway, the practice happened, and. Uh uh, you know peter Peter struggled a little bit with the training, but he, you know, he, he got stuck in a bit and, and uh, got involved and uh, but I did notice that he he seemed particularly interested in john and uh, and, uh, and uh, afterwards, I, I was wondering what was going on there and, and when so the rest of the players had gone, uh, he, he came and had a private word with me, and he, clearly there was something that just didn 't quite add up for him and He said, "Tom, you know that player, Peter." Uh, Sorry, you you know that player, John? It's my German accent, sorry, not very good. Uh, You said he is like Jesus. Yes, that's right, Peter. You mean he goes around and people follow him? (laughs) And and we thought this was absolutely hysterical, that he actually thought that uh, John was a modern-day prophet. So from that point on, uh, for the rest of uh, of our playing football together um, in that team, uh, John uh, was known as the Messiah, which... (laughs) Well, quite an unusual name for a right-back, actually. I mean, maybe a centre-forward, but uh, th- there we go. And, uh, but I have to say that just as it was unlikely that John was a modern-day prophet, when we look at this passage from Mark of the calling of the first disciples, it also seems slightly implausible or unlikely as well, doesn't it? Because taken in isolation, at least, that Jesus portrayed in it is a man of few words, and the disciples seem to be men of few brain cells. He says, come follow me, and off they go. No more detail. It makes me think of one of those awful aftershave or perfume adverts from the 1980s. Do you know the ones I mean, when everyone just sort of follows the person wearing links or whatever it is? Do they still have adverts like that? Uh, Not sure. I I don't really watch commercial television anymore, but there we go. Um, Links, or even worse, it makes me think of Jesus as some sort of hypnotist. He just says the word. And everyone follows. But of course the reality of it is, particularly in Mark's gospel, which is the most concise gospel and probably the earliest one that we have, what he gives us is a summary. Luke and John actually give us a lot more details about the calling of the first disciples. And we learn from them, reading between the lines, that it's not the first time they've met Jesus at all. Almost certainly they'd heard him preach several times in the local synagogues, He also spent a day with them, possibly had healed Peter's mother-in-law by this point as well. And yet what Mark does make clear is that when Jesus did call them, they responded immediately. Verse 18 says, at once they left their nets and followed him. And verse 20 tells us they responded so quickly, they left their father and the hired men in the boat. You know, it wasn't a case of, uh, of, you know, saying, oh, okay, Jesus, why did not you come back for a meal um, and we'll we'll finish our fishing, come for a meal, we'll chat through your proposal then um, and then make our decision. They just got up and went. They didn't even seem to, uh, you know, hang around to get a change of clothes. And they left their homes, their families, and their livelihoods. It begs the question, why? Why did they do it? But I want to suggest it begs the further question will you be willing to do that too? Because here's the key assumption that lies behind everything I want to say this morning. Indeed, everything we will explore in this series on Mark's Gospel this term. We have the same calling. One of the reasons Jesus left this world and sent his Holy Spirit is so that every one of us could be his disciples. So that the relationship with those, that those 12 men enjoyed with him, could now be enjoyed by us all. They gave up everything to follow him because it really was a life living for. Indeed, for most of them, it was a life worth dying for as well. And the same is true for us. We may not be called to spend four years on the road following around an itinerant evangelist and teacher like they were. We may not be called to leave our jobs, our home, or our family, though some of us may be. But Jesus offers them life in all its fullness and he offers us life and life to the full as well. And the call is to follow him and to put him first, just as those first disciples did. So what we have in Mark's gospel actually is our instruction manual. It's characteristically brief, but Mark has been selected for a reason so that he can draw our attention to the most important things that we need to know. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What are the things that Mark does tell us in this short passage? The things that he knows we most need to know about Jesus and about following him. And I'm going to divide those things into three sections. You can see them on the screen there. The content of the good news that Jesus brings. The command that he then gives. And finally, the call. What does he call them to? So let's pray that we're ready to receive this, ready to embrace this calling, ready to understand it, and ready to respond to whatever call God might have on our lives. So let's pray and just prepare ourselves now. Father, thank you that Jesus calls us by name. Thank you that he knows everything about us. Thank you that He and You love us more than we can possibly imagine. And Lord, we want to be obedient disciples. We want to we want to do what You call, call us to. Today, help us to understand that more. And would You so move our hearts that we are ready, ready to respond, ready to respond right now and ready to seek the very best that you have for us as an individual follower, and also as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so on with the content of Jesus' message, and what in Mark, at least, are Jesus' first recorded words. The first eight verses of the Gospel, which we didn't read, are about the forerunner, John the Baptist. Our passage picks up the story as Jesus appears, and he launches his ministry with these seven words. The kingdom of God has come near. What did he mean? Well, the kingdom of God is a phrase Jesus used lots, 14 times in Mark, and if we include Matthew's equivalent, the kingdom of heaven, over 100 times through the Gospels overall. And the idea of the kingdom was common in Jewish thinking. They look forward to a new age of peace and material well-being When, to be honest, when Israel would be free of the oppression of Rome. Increasingly, the phrase, the kingdom of God, had taken on a highly political tone. It was virtually a slogan for Jewish nationalism. Political activists and freedom fighters, even then, had begun to take things into their own hands. We can imagine the tension in the air when Jesus began with those very words. They were loaded terms. And yet Jesus' understanding of the kingdom was completely different. On the screen now, you'll see the three ways in which Jesus' understanding of the kingdom was different. It was personal, not national, about God's rule in a person's heart. Not a territory to be found on a map, but God's reign in an individual's life. The kingdom for Jesus was also spiritual, not material, It wasn't a place of earthly prosperity, but spiritual blessing. When Jesus was asked by some Pharisees when the kingdom would come, he told them that the kingdom of God is within you. It's an internal and spiritual kingdom, not an external and visible one. And third, for Jesus, the kingdom was not only future, but was here and now. With the coming of Jesus, God's rule among men, women and children had begun. The day the prophets had dreamed of had arrived. Near means here. And the kingdom was here because Jesus was here. That was because he himself perfectly lived out the life of God, ruling a person's heart. He committed no sin, the Bible tells us. But it was also because he himself was that promised king, the descendant of David that the Old Testament had predicted would one day come and rule forever. He was the king. He'd now arrived and we can all be part of it. Jesus came to welcome everyone and anyone, whether it was these first disciples that we read about here or the thief on the cross at the end of his ministry. How do we enter it? Well, Jesus' answer to that question is his command, our second section. And the command, again, in verse 15 is this. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I must admit, repent seems like a bit of an old-fashioned word these days. It's a translation of the Greek word uh, metanoia, which literally means a turning around. That's what it means. And um, it fits well, doesn't it, with how we tend to think about conversion, that people have their life completely reorientated Towards God when they come to faith. Many of us, particularly in the younger generations, can pinpoint a moment when that happened. But actually, it's not just a way to enter the kingdom, that turning around, saying sorry and committing yourself to God, asking Him to come into your life. It's actually also the way of the kingdom. Something we need to do, not just once, but time and time again. Why? Because God is holy and we are not. By nature, we think and do and say things that fall short, way short sometimes of the way of love, the way of truth, the way of holiness, the way of peace. Not all the time, but fairly regularly. If we're all honest, I think we would acknowledge that. Saying sorry and embracing God's forgiveness is the only right response. It reflects our intention and our desire to live God's way. It enables us to have a clear conscience, to have peace, despite the fact that we let God down. And it reminds us of the standards we are aiming for, making it more likely, in fact, that we'll come closer to meeting them. It releases us from guilt and it motivates us to succeed. And the great thing is, God never tires of us doing it. One of my annoying habits, uh, among many, I have to say, is that I say sorry all the time. Is anyone else like that? Got any sort of mass apologizers here? Yeah, I've got a few people nodding. And uh, earlier in our relationship, uh, Kate would pick me up on it. She would say, you just keep saying sorry all the time. We'd stop saying sorry. But the problem was, of course, whenever she did that, I then apologized for apologizing. And uh, she she quickly realized that that was rather defeating the object. But God does not get annoyed by that. Remember the prodigal son's story. Remember that the father runs out to embrace the son as he turns back to him. And yes, that was a pretty dramatic turning back to the father. But actually in any moment when we turn back to him, he embraces us again with open arms. There is celebrating in heaven. So when we say sorry, when we turn back to him, It's a way of receiving that embrace, receiving God's love. It's a way of honoring him for who he is. It keeps us humble. It keeps us grateful and it gives us peace. It's a fresh start, washing the slate clean whenever we need it. And I don't know about you, but I need that all the time. And what a great thing it is that we can have that slate washed clean. But what comes next? Well, here's the uh, point at which we reach our third and final section, Jesus' call. And it comes in those final five verses as he encounters Peter and Andrew, James and John, and gives them this famous invitation, come, follow me. Now, we've already noted the context. They'd spent lots of time with Jesus, listening to him preach, maybe asking him questions and hearing his answers before their calling came. So, their response does make sense, actually. It's not Jesus as a hypnotist. It's not the disciples as dimwits. He's simply drawing out their response to what they've already seen and heard. And he just brings it to a head, as he will so often for us. In fact, he's doing that right now. But here's the thing I want us to consider do we realize what following Jesus actually means? It's not like on Twitter, okay? It's not that sort of following. It means actually going everywhere with him. It means being led by Jesus, following his agenda, pursuing his priorities, not asking him to bless ours. In a nutshell, this is what the Christian life is all about. And let's not lose sight of just how different that is from what many people assume the Christian life is actually about. For it's not about being loosely affiliated to Jesus, being willing to associate with him from time to time, or being a signed-up member of his fan club or even a church. For they are things we can do without following him. They were things that many in the crowd that listened to Jesus were willing to do. And yet throughout Mark's gospel, a contrast is drawn between the crowds on one side and those who actually followed him, living with him and walking with him, ministering with him on the other. And it's the latter group who Mark portrays as the authentic Christians, the ones that we're meant to imitate The ones that we're meant to follow. Those who actually lived with Jesus were with him 24-7, not just checking in with him every few weeks. It was those who went where he went. And yet the point for us is not that we too have to move geographically in response to Jesus' call, though some of us might. It's that we follow him in the sense that we have a relationship with Jesus in which the hierarchy between him and him and us is clear it's not where he follows us and our plans but it's where we follow his where we lay down our own ambitions our own agenda and we say these don't matter anymore for now you jesus lead the way you make the plans you set the priorities you're now the boss so are we a follower or a fan being a follower means each day we invite him to lead us, to teach us, to work through us and to challenge us. It's not simply touching base on Sundays. It's involving him in each day, indeed in each hour, to recognize that following him means that he is always with us and that he has a agenda for each day that we need to make our own. Where the places we go, the people we go to, the conversations we have are all Prompted and anointed by Him. That's where the harvest comes. That's where the fruitfulness comes. That's where the excitement comes. That's where the impact on our world comes. That's where we know we're where we're meant to be doing what we're meant to be doing. And it's about having the right starting point, one of laying down our nets, our own priorities, and saying, now. I'm going to adopt yours. It's challenging, isn't it? It's meant to be challenging. This whole term is going to be challenging. And yet the good news is that if this hasn't been our starting point up to now for engaging with Jesus, we can just start again. We can do it now. We can renew our relationship with him right now, this time on different terms. The terms he set for those four disciples, we can say, okay, Now I am willing not just to be acquainted with you, to read and sing about you, to occasionally communicate with you. Now I am willing to follow you, just as those first disciples did. And even if we've already been following him in that way, we can take the opportunity to think again Have I lost any of that original openness, that original enthusiasm of the new follower? And here are just a few giveaway signs that perhaps we have. Have we stopped feeling that the kingdom of God really is good news? Have we lost sight of why it is so good? Or of what Jesus being king of our lives really means? Have we stopped looking forward to the journey he's taking us on? Have we stopped trusting that he will look after us on that journey? That he knows what's best for us? And that we can have everything we need if we stick with him? And have we lost sight of the reward that he offers everyone who chooses to follow him? Yes, heaven, but also that we can be fishers of men and women and children. For that is what Jesus promised to Andrew and Peter. And it's meant to act as an incentive for us too. And yet we so easily forget, don't we? So easily forget that being a fisher of people is what we were made for. And so we fail to take all the opportunities that come to us and even forget to pray for them or look out for them, whether that is explicitly talking about our faith or demonstrating it through our care and love. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that some people are called particularly to be evangelists. A few have that special calling. And actually, we'll be hearing from one of them in our next evening service, Carol Cole who I think is here today with many of the people that she's drawn into faith at the All Night Cafe. We really look forward to hearing from you. But for the rest of us who maybe don't have that very special gift of an evangelist, we are still called to share our faith. And I want us to grasp that we are all still in the fishing business. That's what the main purpose of the church is. And as in any large-scale fishing business... There are different roles in the process. Some of us are like those who actually go out on sea and lower the nets into the sea and lift them up again and collect the fish. Others of us are like those who drive the lorries, taking the fish to the markets, the fishmongers and the fish and chip shops. Others of us are like those in the office who run all the other functions and services that allow the fishing business to run. But the overall goal for us all is the same to see more people come to faith do you believe that absolutely it's hard but unless we're focused on that goal it's not going to happen and we need to be made, we need to be willing to make all the changes that allow that to happen fully and that's going to be something we're thinking about in the months to come And so a church is not meant to be a sort of cozy support group providing protection and comfort from the challenges and dangers outside. It does comfort us, it does protect us, but rather it's a mission organisation equipping its people to get out there sharing God's truth and God's love. So I want to finish with our church's vision This month, we're going to be beginning that vision process. It will take much of the year, in fact, but we're kicking it off on Wednesday with a prayer and brainstorming evening from 7.45, where we're going to be considering three necessary first questions, and we'll all be discussing and listening to God about this together. And the questions are these. What is our DNA as a church? Who are we at St. Paul's? Second, what's working well here? or has worked well here, that we can build on? And third, what new things do we sense God is wanting to do in us? I'd love you all to come along to that. I'd love you all to contribute throughout the process, and there'll be various other points where we can all do so. And I don't know exactly what that vision is going to end up being. That is for God to reveal. But what I do know is that fishing for people is going to be absolutely at the heart of it, Because it's at the heart of absolutely God's vision for every church and every disciple. And what I also know is that ultimately God's collective vision for us as a community of people can only be fulfilled when the individual people in that community, that's each one of us, also seeks to discern and live out his individual calling for us specifically. Because he's called us each by name. He knows exactly how we're made. And he has works prepared for each of us that reflect our own skills and experiences and situations and gifts. And what we all need to do is seek to discern those things and step into them. And as we do that together as the body of Christ, well, that overall vision can be fulfilled. So it's not about the vicar particularly. Or the staff team, or the lay ministers, or the ministry coordinators, or the PCC, or the life group leaders. It's about every one of us playing our part, using our own distinctive gifts. And later in this process, we're going to have an exercise that I'm going to invite you all to take part in, where we specifically seek to discern that personal calling, the way we're shaped as individuals, which can then lead us to get involved in those aspects of the vision that we know are best suited to what God is calling us to. And what lies behind all of this is that we're all loved and we're all called by name. Do you believe that? God made you. God loves you. And he has plans that are special and precious and exciting and inspiring and realistic. You can do them. It's the life you've always wanted. It's life in all its fullness. It's a fulfilling life. And yes, it is a life worth living. Our role is to step into it and to start doing it today. For the disciples responded in the moment. They didn't say to Jesus, come back tomorrow, come back next week, and we can think about it more. They recognized the voice of God when they heard it. And they knew the right time to respond to God is always now. So what we're going to do now is we're going to sing a song first and the band are going to come up now that I think reflects deep down the desires that we all have. And after that, I'm going to invite us to come and receive prayer. I'll explain after the song what that invitation is about. But I think what I want to just say to us all now is actually, if you want to be someone who's willing to respond in the moment, willing to do whatever God calls you to, however radical or however unexpected or expected or predictable or surprising or whatever it is, if you want to be a person like that, then you need to be willing to respond in the moment. And to be brutally honest, you need to not worry about what anyone else thinks. It's about you and God. And this is a place, a safe place, where we can be prayed for, where we can take the risks of stepping out and seeking his calling, and where we will love and pray for and minister to and encourage and support and strengthen each other. That's the model. It's not spectators and people at the front doing it. It's every one of us doing it together. So let's stand and sing this song. I encourage you to use it as a prayer, as a way of expressing your own longing for God and his will for your lives. And then we'll lead into some prayer ministry here at the front and also at the back for those who want that there.